why can't people just get along? You know, and, I, and th the book was great. They were super kind to each other. I'm not saying they were fighting or anything like that. But yeah, why can't we just all agree on everything all the time? Wouldn't that be nice if we could just all agree on everything all the time? And then sometimes you might think to yourself, if we could just go back to the way it was in the first century in the early church where they always all got along and they always all agreed with each other. Wink, wink, right? That's kind of like the thing that you often do in Bible college. You're like, well, I think the solution to our problems that we may ever have, and as Christians, we just need to be like how they were in the early church. But you know what? Sin started with Adam and Eve. Sin is with us today, and sin was with them in the early church. And until the Lord comes back again, sin will always be with us. And we'll see this morning that the church had to deal with some of these problems as well. We'll see how they dealt with it and how God dealt with it. So we go in chapter 4, verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, we actually read a verse very similar to this earlier. As a matter of fact, if you weren't paying too close attention, you might have thought, oh, we've already gone over this passage, right? We, this idea of them sharing everything in common, we talked about not too long ago. So I'm not going to completely rehash it, but we're, this, to me, talks about this close friendship that they had. They're very tight-knit. And so remember, we talked about this last time. Does this mean a complete you know, getting rid, no one ever having any, owning anything. Is this an abolishment of ownership? I don't think it's an abolishment of ownership. And we'll see in chapter 5, which we're going to get to today, an example of why I think this can't be a complete abolishment of no one owning anything anymore, why it's not small C communism, because it seems like they still own things. We'll see that in chapter 5. But I would like to say, as unpopular as it would have been for me to say, they were practicing small c communism here, I would have said it. I would have said it. Half you may have hated me when I did it. You know, we live in a capitalistic society. It's worked out very, very well for us. But if I thought this passage taught that the way the church did things, but they didn't own anything anymore, I would have said it. And to me, as I thought about this passage this week, I thought, you know, my allegiance when I preach is to what I think God is saying in the text. Of course, it's not, I don't think it's saying that Christians shouldn't own personal property, but I'd like to think that I'd have the boldness if I thought that's what it said. That's what I should have said. But what we think is going on here is more like this. And I used this illustration before, so for those of you who remember, I, I apologize, but you know, in a in a society today, if you're a farmer, you get insurance on your crops, right? So if your farm goes, you know, you don't floods or whatever, your, your crops don't pan out, what happens? You get insurance, you collect. As a matter of fact, I remember a farmer friend of mine, he was saying, boy, I really hope it rains some more. He's like, my crops really aren't looking that good. I'm pretty sure this year if it rains some more, if it just ruined the crops a little bit more, I think I could get more out of my insurance than I could if I actually harvest my crops. But of course, back then, when probably 90%, I mean, in America, 80% of us were farmers just 100 years ago, so there's probably like 90%, maybe even more people this day and age were farmers. And what happened then if your crops failed? There was, no, there was no farmer's insurance back then. You were in trouble. You needed people to help you. And so you can see how in situations like that, the church came together 
And if selling something is needed what to be done, they would help one another out. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So as I said at the beginning, this is kind of an overview. Things are going well. The apostles are preaching their testimony. They're talking about the resurrection of Christ, and grace is with them all. The emphasis on the power of what they're saying here, so likely miracles came along with it, but here we're emphasizing not just the miracles, but the power of their witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes you might think, well, I'm not doing any miracles or whatever. Why would anyone listen to me? And it seems like the power of what the apostles were preaching was just, just because they would do miracles from time to time. They also, there's power in the message itself. You know, the prayer we talked about last week in 4, 22, 24 through 30 that we talked about, it seems like this is being answered. Things are going well, and despite the persecution, they're growing and, of course, we see the apostles at the center of the activity. The apostles have a lot of, you know, they are the big dogs in this situation. Now, we don't have apostles today, right? So sometimes it's kind of hard to compare what they did in Acts chapter 4 to what we do today because we don't have them today. But here it is pretty clear that the apostles are quite influential in the leadership. We go on to verse 34 and verse 35. It says, and there was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands, or houses sold them and bought the and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, only ten percent of the people in that world were middle class. Only four to seven percent were upper class. So there were a lot of people that needed a lot of help back then. They were really hurting. But it also seems like the way the imperfect verb is used here, along with the present participle, that it's probably not that they sold everything at once. It's probably that they were selling it as need came along. We know in chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, that Mary still owns a home. But the connection here is great. You know, Friday, we watched the movie, right? Some of you saw, I got to see it, same kind of different as me. We saw some of the power of friendship, the power of that connection, the power of having people there for you when you need them. And clearly, the early church had people there when they needed them. And today, maybe it's not that our crops are, you know, have gone down and we need someone money, you know. It, we need friends, you know. We, we need people that care for us. It's so hard to be lonely. You can have all the money in the world and still just be so lonely you want to kill yourself. And the great thing about the church is the connection that we can have together. So we always want to be fostering this connection and unity together. Verse 36, kind of continue an overview of what's going on. It says, thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas. So this is the introduction of Barnabas to us, which means son of encouragement. He was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. And so he gives us an example. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this Barnabas was likely a Jew who had been greatly influenced by Greek culture. He comes from Cyprus, which we know was settled by the Jews about 330 B.C. They were expelled at about A.D. 117 after the Jews rebelled. But if this is where he was from, or at least his family was from, he would have come from a very Greek 
background. And as we continue throughout the book of Acts, we'll see much more from Barnabas to come. He was a Levite, so he wasn't really supposed to own land, technically, from the Old Testament. But exceptions were made in the Old Testament, especially by the first century. Even more exceptions were made. Um, He usually would have served in the temple. That's what a lot of the Levites did, even when they weren't, uh, because not all of them were priests. They would watch over the gate. They taught and copied the Torah. We're not really sure what Barnabas did, but he was from the tribe of Levite, and he was influenced by Greek culture, probably. So this is what's going on. We've talked about some of this before. And the reason I think it gives us this overview is because when we get to chapter 5, we are going to see kind of the ultimate contrast to what's going on. Things are going well now. Things are going great. Things are super positive. So this is the, this is the when we're all arguing in Bible college, hey, if the, the way we can solve any problems we had in the church is just by going back to the first century. We go back and we read Acts chapter 4 where everything's going well. But I think we get this reminder of how things are going well at the end of chapter 4 so we can get to chapter 5. Chapter 5 starts with the old word, but, but. Gotten, we all got all buttered up about how wonderful everything was. Now we got to break us the news. But Anan met a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Sounds good so far. Sounds good, right? This is just going to be another example of like Joseph or Barnabas, you know, Joseph Barnabas, right? This is, you know, here we go. This is great. There must have been someone in need. There was a reason. He's just showing this incredible act of kindness. So he sells a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself let me try. I tried a really hard time to figure out how you could blame the wife on this completely, but I, I, I didn't, unfortunately. But she did know. And he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the possible's feet. This word kept back, the term used here, is a term that's also often associated with financial fraud. If you want, not that I'm an accountant, but Fonda is, and maybe she could tell you. But I've taken the word of my father on this. He says, if you want to lose faith, I'm putting a few words in his mouth, but uh, if you want to lose faith in the honesty of humanity, become an accountant. Oh, how people are willing to lie and cheat or whatever. When money's involved. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with this avoiding as many taxes as you can under the law. I'm not suggesting that we all shouldn't try to take advantage of whatever tax codes there is. I, I'm not saying that. I, and that's not what my dad's saying either. He tries to save his clients as much money as he possibly can. That's his job. That's not the, the trouble. He goes, you get some person, they come in, they say, well, can you do this? Oh, no, can't, no, not really supposed to do that, you know. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. Come on. Come on. Of course, I assume, I assume the best of my dad, that he doesn't do it. But, oh, 
the things he's been asked. And he, he tells me some, but of course, with his clients, he doesn't give me very much information. I'm sure he's got, if, if he told all, he could give some crazy stories on that. And this is what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. They decide to do a little financial fraud against the church. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? I mean, it's clear here. He had a choice. He didn't have to sell the land, right? This was not an instant liquidation of everyone's assets. He didn't have to sell the land. And after he did, he didn't have to give it. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. If there was ever a passage in the Bible that you could say, the devil made me do it, this might be the one, right? Why has Satan filled your heart? You know, sometimes we talk about Holy Spirit filling, and we have different times, or the does it in different ways. And so in Ephesians, it says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. We say, well, what does that filling mean? And sometimes I've heard people say, well, it means that the Holy Spirit, like, controls you. I'm not sure that's quite right. I don't think here that Satan controlled him. Otherwise, God, I don't think, would find him culpable Right, wouldn't find him responsible for his sin. But when it says that Satan filled his heart, I do think that Satan influenced him, nudging him in that direction. And then he had a choice. Is he going to take that nudge or not? The same way when the Holy Spirit nudges us in that direction, we have a choice. Are we going to Go in that direction that the Spirit's leading us or not. And when it says he has lied, it's not just to men, but to God. See, the issue here is it's not some obligation to some rules. It's not like the apostles made some rules like, hey, you got to sell your land and give us all the money. They didn't, apparently didn't make those rules. What they were supposed to be doing here is giving money out of the kindness of their heart. They were supposed to be giving it cheerfully, willingly, because they wanted to, because they wanted to serve God. So when you say, I'm going to take this opportunity to serve God, I'm going to turn it into something for selfish gain. I'm just going to use it in a way to make myself look good, tell everyone I gave it all. That's not... Stealing just from the church? That is going directly against our devotion to God. Our obligation to give is not a man, to man-made rules, but our devotion to God. And he abused. He pretended to have that devotion. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came all who heard of it. Sometimes we say fear is respect. I bet it was a little more than respect, don't you think? That it was a little more than respect. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. The penalty for lying to God and tearing apart the fabric of the community with dishonesty was death. You think about a community like this. You think about a situation when someone's in need that the other person comes and helps them out. What happens when people start to lie and cheat the system. It ain't going to work out so well now, is it? The close-knit community where you all know one another, where you're all connected together, when someone decides to come and abuse it, what is going to happen to it? It is going to fall apart. And when someone came and abused it, the penalty was swift and the penalty was harsh. Now in Greek culture, there certainly was this idea that if you wronged the gods, there would be serious penalty. But even amongst the Greeks, instant death was rare. This was a harsh penalty. Really, if you think about all the rest of the New Testament, I mean, is there anything as harsh almost as you did this and you're dead? I mean, I, I can't think of any, too many other New Testament penalties quite so swift. And it says, the young man rose and wrapped him and carried out and buried him while the Jews did bury their dead the same day. That was normal practice. It seems that this one was in particular haste because, as we'll see in the next verses, the family certainly wasn't notified, now were they? So the wife didn't know about it. This man died and was buried unceremoniously. There was no service for him, flowers on his grave, or sung, his favorite songs sung. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. Now, some have said something like, why so long? Why did it take so long? As a matter of fact, some have said this, this can't even be true because it took this long. Now, if I died, you could just like text Bethany or call her or call her work or call the friend that she's with or drive over there or whatever. In this day and age, there was no calling, there was no texting, there was no driving. I don't even think they had the smoke signal thing going on, right? I mean, they, they, how are they going to find the wife? They had to like run, walk, whatever, and go find her, which very likely by the time they found her, by the time they wrangled her up, and by the time they got her back, three hours is a very reasonable amount of time. It took a long time to get anything back, done back then. And when she comes back, she didn't know what happened. She has a chance to make a choice. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. 
Just a hint. Just a hint. If someone calls a special meeting and asks you a question and you, like, know you're lying, you probably should just fess up right then. They probably, probably got you. She's sticking to it. Oh, yeah. Yes. For that much. Sometimes we say, I'm just a kid. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a woman or I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm elderly or whatever excuse. You know, what, what about me or I'm, I'm nobody. I'm not, I don't have any influence. It seems that God, whether men or women or whatever, God cares about whether we do right or wrong. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Premeditated. That the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are the same and they're separate because at one point it says you've lied to the Spirit and you've lied to God and they kind of connected the same thing. So this passage is often kind of a Trinitarian text that people use. And this woman has decided to test that Trinitarian God. And behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church. And I'd, I'd, be, a little, I'd be a little nervous too. How about you? But all, and upon all who heard these things. A few things. Number one, I, I think it's clear sin is serious. This was uh, no joke to God. Some better news. Aren't you glad God often defers judgment and is a little more long-suffering than he is in this particular situation? I mean, if every time I did something I shouldn't have done, I'd have been gone a long time ago. How about you? It'd be a pretty empty world, wouldn't it? The kitty cats would be running the whole thing, I think. They, surely they never do anything wrong. Final thing. Now, this lie would have torn the church apart. The whole system of caring for one another would have been destroyed by these kind of lies. Don't tear the church apart. There's been so many people who have come into the church said, I can get some gain for me out of this. Now, I don't know this guy, so he may have done this out of completely altruistic reasons, but, but guess which church the mayor went to in our town? The biggest one. Now, maybe because he wanted to go there. I don't know. He could have been a wonderful person. I, I, I'm not trying to say anything. But 
just not too hard to see. But you say, I'm going to come a part of this church thing. My goal is, what am I going to get out of this? How does it help me? It's health, whatever. When I say it, what do we mean? The people, right? Do I care about the people? Are the people, am I trying to do what's best for these people that I'm living life with, that I'm trying to care for, that I'm trying to build up, that I'm trying to be there for when things go bad, that when life gets hard and gets sad and they need someone to talk? Am I trying, am I doing what's best for them? Or am I here just to say, little lie to make myself look good, good to go. Don't tear the body of Christ apart. God clearly sees it as a serious issue. That is why I think it's not just the lie that's bad. It's not just the lie. It's a lie that tore at the fabric of the church. I just pray that each of us, as we come to the body of Christ, and none of us are perfect, right? They weren't perfect then, we're not perfect now, we never will be that we enjoy this fellowship that we can have together, this friendship that we can have together, that people will be there for us when we need it. Such a beautiful thing. It's so great. So wonderful. I remember when I was especially young and I was preaching a sermon, there was a little kid in the audience, and I would say, boy, i got to be really nice to him because one day, one day I'm going to need him. When I can't walk anymore and I, I need someone to push my wheelchair I want someone to be there to help me with that. I don't, I don't have any kids. Who's going to be there for me? Right? So wonderful to have a church family. Enjoy it. Love it. Appreciate it. Don't abuse it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. We just thank you so much for what you've done for us. And Lord, this example of Ananias and Sapphira help us to not only give us a seriousness about how, how bad it is when we tear apart the fabric of the church and rip apart the relationships and all for selfish gain. Lord, I just, I just pray it would also help us appreciate the wonderfulness, the fellowship, the connection that we can have, that when the chips are down, when we need someone to be for, there for us, that we can have this fellowship and community together as believers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.